We aren't saying we're forced into a tiny electrically charged cage for the amusement of the Council of 13, but welcome to Radio Free Skaven Blight 665.66 UHMR Camrat Radio. Coming at you live tonight from Gracier Thankwall's broom closet with only the freshest of news from the front lines. Where we are proud to report that the Empire is on the run as the city of Nuln has fallen to the expertly crafted tactics of Thankwall himself. Definitely happened sometime in history. I am your red-crested goblin dwarf slayer, even though they took away my hand axes, Goblin King. Joined today by my co-hosts, straight out of the steaming jungles of Lustria, unnamed skink warrior number six, who likes to go by the title of Emmy. It's lizard time, bitches. And dragged kicking and screaming out of the cold wastes of Nagaroth, it's the emissary of pain, Chuckerfly. And his loincloth-clad Marienburg buddy, Marky. Hey, I gave you that loincloth to cover that up. <laughs> I had to sneeze into something. Oh, okay, in that case. <laughs> if you keep playing with it, it's going to fall off, okay? The loincloth <laughs> will fall off. God. <laughs> I was just cleaning it, and it went off. <laughs> <clears throat> Welcome back cold to. <laughs> God damn it! Sorry. <laughs> hey, is that a warp? Is that a warp you... lightning pistol in your loincloth? Or are you just happy to see me? <laughs> I didn't give you that loincloth to polish stuff, okay, buddy? Yeah, it's like a nice little blanket at night. It's pretty nice. <laughs> Welcome back to Under the Realms of Madness, Episode 4, Warhammer the Old World, War of the Beard. In Episodes 1 and 2, we focused on the earlier parts of lore and history, looking at the Age of Creation and covering, in brief, events between the 5th and 2nd millennium before the establishment of the Imperial Calendar. History which focuses mostly on the events being portrayed by the Elder Races. But that doesn't mean that the human race had been completely silent. The first true civilization of mankind, Nehikara, birthed one of the old world of Warhammer and Age of Sigmar's most infamous gods, Nagash, a figure that truly needed his own deep dive and exploration. Historical events, be they real or fictional, are never organized in a straight line, weaving in and out of one another. Um, Nagash's story took us from the... 1950 before IC to 15 before IC, which is a huge chunk of time. With all of that having been completed, it's time for us to jump back and take a look at the events that truly started to clear the playing field for the rise of Sigmar's empire. As a reminder, we covered the War of the Beard in brief in the end of our second episode before finishing off with mentions of the fall of Tylos which would later become Skaven Blight in 1780 before IC, and then the unification of Cathay, which happened around 1800 before IC. Our story now brings us back to 1997 before IC, as the tensions between the dwarves and the elves reach a fever pitch and war becomes unavoidable. What do you think is going to win, Chuck? The elves? <laughs> <laughs> Technically, you're right and wrong. <laughs> the best of both worlds. Do they get? Do they get put in the what is it? The book of punishment. What is it? The book of, book of, of grudges. grudges. Book yeah. of grudges. Yeah. 
I like to call it the Book of Punishment. Who who cares about their book? <laughs> the Book of Punishment. He carries it in his loin cloth. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> it's like a little old allegedly. Testament. It's gold gilded. Yeah, War, it's they put them in the hotel gilded. rooms in the Empire. Uh, <laughs> it's, is war is warpstone radioactive? I, I well, so that's it an interesting. Green. That's an interesting question, and I. I can't remember who I was listening to or who I was talking to about this exact thing, but the entire, it was Kevin, Kevin and I were talking about warp stone at one point, And that was essentially the, the end, the gist of our conversation was that warp stone is very much uh, radium because radium mm. glows green. And mm-hmm. when we first discovered radium, we put it on everything thinking that it was good for you and horrible, horrible, horrible things happened to people. Yes. So Titus, is, one of them. No, like people's. So the radium girls famously to get mm-hmm. into a little bit of real world horror history. Um, they would lick their paintbrushes. We most of us were hammer. Right. Players are familiar with exact hobbyists. painting the faces of those glow-in-the-dark watches. And so they and, would... Yeah. And, like, their jaws would rot out of their heads. Mm-hmm. Oh. So it's like the Monster Girls. Yeah, it's not, not some cool... There's actually a movie about it. Um, really? There's because, a whole play, yeah. too. Like a Mad Hatter kind of situation? Uh, well, kind of. Way worse in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. So but, I, um, I'm assuming it's just like... It's a like, Netflix what, movie. What kind of, like radiation is is coming off of radium pretty bad a, radiation enough, enough to create like, yeah, bone, i'm assuming bone, like, like gamma beta what are we talking about i'm i'm that i'm not sure of but it was radiation rads on a dose that were high enough that like bone cancer throat cancer mm-hmm. uh all pretty sorts common. of horrible stuff yeah yeah radiation sickness and again this is kind of in the time before we really knew what radiation did yeah yeah mm-hmm. well, i mean this is like uh what, what like the demon core i watched a this is but this is like any documentary on that almost 75 years before really the manhattan project is when the radium girl stuff happened That's and they crazy. they knew at a certain point and and basically we're trying to like hush it up and keep people working in the factory and all of that but like the reason that they decided to even start on it was because they were like, well, this stuff glows in the dark so you can see your watches in the dark and all of that. And it's a, it's interesting. There was also a time in the 1800s when people would take like radium drops and because it glows green. Mm-hmm. So it must be good for your health. Like there's, yeah, our history with radiation is real weird. <laughs> yeah. No joke. I, uh, makes me I'm not saying that it's a thing, but you know, thirsty using fluorescent paints and whatnot. Mm-hmm. It's like, t- 50 years down the line, like if you ever used a fluorescent paint, <laughs> call this lawyer because there's going to be a class action lawsuit. Don't, yep. I hope you didn't lick it. You're, you're not peeing bright green, are you? That's, that's from the rock star I drank. It's not from <laughs> okay. fluorescent paint. Did, did you or one of your loved ones use? I was going to actually, I, mean, I was going to actually <laughs> name a company and then I decided not to. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> To start us off, we've got a quote. In the Elder Ages, when the world was young, elves and dwarves lived in peace and prosperity. Dwarfs are great craftsmen, lords of the underdeeps, artificers beyond compare. Elves are peerless mages, masters of dragons, creatures of the sky and air. During the time of High King Snorri Whitebeard and Prince Malekith, these two great races were 
the pinnacle of their strength. But such power and dominion could not last. Fell forces now gather against elves and dwarves. Malekith, embittered by his maiming in the flames of Viserion, seeks to destroy both, but still darker powers are also at work. Already strained, disharmony sours relations between them until only anonymity remains. Treachery is inevitable, a terrible act that can only result in one outcome, war. This is an extract from the Book of War of Vengeance, also known as the Great Betrayal. So the War of the Beard, as it's known to the Elves, and the War of Vengeance, as it is known to the Dwarves, is also known as the War of Ancients to the Race of Mankind. This was a devastating world-spanning conflict that lasted from 2000 before IC to 1600 before IC. In this conflict, the dwarves of the World Edge Mountains and the High Elves of Ulfwan and their old world colonies clashed. The dwarves were under the command of High King Gotrick Starbreaker, while the High Elves were led by the Phoenix King Kaldor II. While the dwarves were ultimately the victors in the war, the 400-long-year conflict devastated both races, and the dangerously weakened Dwarven Empire was left in no position to effectively combat the rising threats of Greenskin and Skaven. The dwarves did technically win. Mm -hmm. Not only had the High Elves been defeated in the conflict, but the Phoenix King Kaldor II had been slain. Which is a victory. An opportunity the Dark Elves of Nagaroth and their Witch King Malaketh seized upon, launching a new conquest against Ulitha, Ulathon, an Ulfwan. act that forced... <laughs> I'm never going to pronounce it the same way. I'm just giving <laughs> up. Even when I buy the paint, I'm like... An act that forced the new Phoenix King to recall all the forces and civilians of the High Elf Society back to the island nation's defense. Those who refused, as they felt little to no loyalty to Ulfa, became the independent colonies that would eventually become the Wood Elves of Athel Lorin. Oh, that's where they come from. I yep. did not know that. Yep, I... they're, the, they're the stragglers that stayed behind. And that's it, okay, it yep. actually goes back to an earlier event because the children of the first Phoenix King that everybody thought died were actually smuggled to Anthel Lauren. They weren't killed by Malekith. So they're actually the founders of the Wood Elves, but because they mm -hmm. were there, basically the elves who stayed behind became the Wood Elves, the Sylvaneth, mm -hmm. or what would become later the Sylvaneth. Right. That makes a ton of sense. With a few exceptions, mostly in the World's Edge Mountains and among the Ten Kingdoms, in Ulthwen, the elder races of elves and dwarves had become a mere shadow of their former glory. Resentment would fester, grow, and become a hallmark of the relations between the sons and daughters of Grongni and the scions of Asurian. There was little time for the dwarves to celebrate victory as a great cataclysm rocked the very foundation of the world's edge mountains. None knew of the true cause of these events, but the earthquakes and widespread volcanic activity would force the mountain kingdoms of Karaz Angkor to self-isolate, as their surface world became blackened wastes of ash and fire. This age, which became known as the Time of Woes to the Dwarves, also saw large segments of the Dwarven Underway collapse into ruin. The Underway, or the Ungdran Angkor in the Dwarven tongue, was a name given to the network of a vast intercontinental highway of subterranean tunnels. 
constructed by the dwarves with the purpose of connecting the entirety of their strongholds in the World's Edge Mountains from the frozen north to lush jungles of the Southland. A bit of foreshadowing here, but along with the Time of Woes and the Goblin Wars sections of the Underway, they would become pivotal for both the Greenskins and the Skaven. Its very nature would allow armies to bypass treacherous terrain that would take months to navigate if they had to travel over the mountains. I think it's actually kind of interesting. I didn't really conceptualize it until Mm. doing the research for Under the Realms, but the Underway and the Webway... webway? Oh, yeah. It's just shifting it. Instead of being the elves who inherited it from the old ones, it's the dwarves who made it. So it like the elves perfect it kind of. Yeah. Mm. And the dwarves the dwarves are really um we'll get into it when we get into some of the dwarven heroes. Uh, I I I can tell you guys for a fact with how much I'm a fan of them. Gotrick Gurnison is getting his own episode, but oh, Gotrick has a Gotrick. Gotrick and Sigmar and their friendship needs a whole episode. And every every single time there's like he's in in the uh uh, well, you know, Manling, only only dwarves could have carved these halls. This work is too refined for crude human hands. He's just like constantly tiny digs. Oh, yeah. Love it. I think he's great. The Prelude to War. As a quick note, while we will use high elves, dark elves, and dwarves most commonly, they are also just their common names in the language of the Empire. Each has their own true names, the high elves being the Azur, the Dark Elves being the Druchi, and the Dwarves being the Dawi. And it's Ulthwin, correct? Ulthwin. Ulthwin. Okay, I, I yeah. think I've got it. Gray. It's like Welsh, kind of. Yeah. yeah. Welsh-like. I, just, I see the on, and I forget the win. <laughs> mm-hmm. Long before the time of Sigmar and Gil de Breton, during the Age of Discovery, the High Elves had reached out and become allied with many races. With many raves. I wrote raves. I think it is now we, canon. We <laughs> yep, we understand now where Slanesh comes from. <laughs> it was the dwarves all along. <laughs> Possibly chief among them, the dwarves, and this alliance and the trade it produced increased the stature of both races. The dwarves, for their part, were experienced in the secrets of ancient runes, metalworking, and engineering, producing the finest weapons and armor that the world had known, many of which were gifted to the Azure princes and dragon lords. For their part, the elves taught the Dawi art, poetry, literature, and how to enchant items. Elven silk and steel were highly valued by the dwarves just as the Azure prized dwarven armor, weapons, and alcohol, all of which became common sites in Ulthwin. Very good. Thank you. <laughs> because <laughs> of these trades and political relations, the fortress of Sith Rinozak... Holy shit. Holy shit. <laughs> this is pretty good. Okay. <laughs> ...was founded at the mouth of the River Reich, a settlement that would later become... Marienburg, way easier to say. Easier. And the mighty sitter city of Tor Alessi, which would later become La Angelui in Britain in Britonia. I should probably La La Angeli. La Angi. Yeah, probably. La I, I should I would pronounce ask. it like kind of Cajun. Yeah. yeah. Uh it became one Britonia, of the yeah. Yes, yeah, because it's that yes. it, it is in France. I mean, it's an ancient old world France became one of the largest cities of the elves in the old world. 
Then the Age of Strife brought with it the Sundering, where the followers of Malekith would oppose the Phoenix King Kalandor I. After their defeat at the marches of Malandor, Malekith's followers would become the Dark Elves, and the Druchi would be exiled to the cold lands of Nagaroth. It was in this exile that Malekith would hatch a plan designed to drive a wedge between the Azur and the Dawi. In the Imperial year 2005 before I see, the Druchi posing as Azur raiders began a campaign of terror and disruption against Dawi trading caravans and settlements. Notably, Zakbar Varf was raised to the ground. In a diplomatic response, the Dwarves simply enacted trade and travel sanctions, but ultimately, marks had begun to build against the Azur and the Book of Grudges, and each was like a spark cast into incredibly dry grasslands. Oh, I wonder, uh, Marky, what kind of marks would you make in your Book of Punishment? <laughs> <laughs> Is it just a mark? You're like, just one. I feel like uh, instead of individuals, or maybe I, I guess maybe it would, would kind of work this way, but like it would be against certain like, oh, the elves pissed me off this week. Put a little tally in there. So like you would just have like elves and tallies. Yeah. Gotcha. Just as a, as a, as a whole, and be like, so it's the word elf probably spelled wrong, and then it just has tally marks behind it. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So so then my question. For the book of actual grudges, is it actually like written or how simplified do the dwarves have it? <laughs> so the book of grudges is not a single book anymore. It is like a well, library. I'm sure it's a library, of books. yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So like but one it, library just for the elves. It will be. Oh, it yeah. will be the oath that they are swearing against whoever it is that did it. So. And we'll get into some of these oaths later, but like there was an oath between Gotrick Starbreaker and Kalendor the second, where he basically said, um, yeah, we'll get into some of the exact wording, but it's exact. In a lot of cases, it's exact wording. It's okay. like on the 25th of January, an elf merchant dropped a coffee cup on my laptop a pox on him in his house. It's that sort of stuff. Like it's yeah. that detailed. Nice. It's fully like Usher's Confessions part like one, two, three, four. And it's just like full on like explicit details of <laughs> everything. Because yeah. just, wasn't it, wasn't it, didn't it used to be a model? There still is a book of grudges there, there, there model. There still is a book of grudges model. Excellent. Mm -hmm. It's just a book. It's, just, just giant, it's like a giant library. book like on a, on a dwarf, right? Um, it, uh, he's a I think he's, they're re-releasing a new one this year. Oh, okay. Um, or they may already be out, but I think it's one of the models that's coming out this year is the, is the, like the record keeper of the book or something. He's just going to have, he's just going to have scrolls and stuff everywhere. Oh, the that old, is so yeah. cute. Oh my god. The gosh. old book of grudges model is a dwarf in a, in a throne being carried by four dwarves and he has a book in front of him and he's reading from it. That's legit. You know, it'd be cool if, like, the new That's model, dope. it's something similar to that. But instead of dwarves carrying him, it's like a goblin, an elf, he, you know, whoever they mm -hmm. got a grudge against actually carrying him. Exactly. If you've seen Thirteen Reasons Why, like each book, it's basically <laughs> like, "Hello, Malachith, and welcome to your tape." 
I am never going to see or watch oh. 13 Reasons hey, Why is that, is without that, is that the immediately the thinking. Tapes? Yes. Everybody I'm never, yeah, never going to be daughter. able Mm-hmm. I'm never going to be able to think or watch that show again without thinking of a dwarf writing bitterly in the Book of Crunch. Right. You got to get your little dwarf accent like, and welcome to your tape. What, what's her, what's her name in it? Oh, I forget what her name is. My hair was flowing and my locks were tied in a knot. And then he spilt the coffee. Exactly. <laughs> Hannah. Hannah in my head is now a bitter old dwarf. (laughs) Yes. I realize uh, that I realize that show is very serious, but sometimes you have to laugh at serious things or you become very depressed. It's a TV show? Yes. It's a intense teen drama series. This girl unalives herself if we have to use TikTok language. Yeah. But in the act of unaliving herself, she records 13 or I think she only gets to 12, but she records there, there like 13 12, tapes, but there's, there's 12 13 tapes. Four people. Yeah. yeah. Huh. And it's like, you know, here's your tape and like, here's the reasons why you are making me do this. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's not a very coming from a very, you, realize, place, you know, I asked for scolding hot copy. And when it fell out of my kneecaps, it was ice cold. And that is why I, I put the mark against you. As a male who played football in high school, there were parts of 13 Reasons Why, which made me feel uh, incredibly targeted. Uh, my, my teenage daughter made me watch Mean Girls last week. <laughs> okay, uh, yes. The Book of, one of my brothers is also a lot like the Burn Book in Mean yeah. Girls. Yeah, that's that's kind of what it reminded me of. And I was like, mm-hmm. she's like, I can't believe you've never seen Mean Girls. And I'm like, yes, yes, baby. As a as a middle aged man, can't believe I haven't watched this <laughs> this movie. You're about you're about my brother's age, and that's one of my brother's favorite movies because it came out generationally mm-hmm. directed at your age. Yeah, like mm-hmm. your age group because you're a little bit older than my stepdaughter. So yeah, yeah. I had to watch that too. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not. I wouldn't say I'm middle aged, but I don't plan on living much longer, so I'm gonna say middle aged. <laughs> yeah, you're middle aged in like medieval peasant years. Yeah, so, <laughs> it so like top so, out around thirty five. So, so in your your punishment book, you have a mark and it just says life. <laughs> Every single time your coworkers ask you what fun things you're going to do for this weekend and your immediate internal response is not be around you fuckers, that's a mark in the book of grudges. You <laughs> son of a bitch, I'm marking my book of punishment right now. You asked me what I'm doing this weekend. Yeah. You just asked me, what did I have fun Mer- this weekend? I'm putting a mark in here. Merch yeah, twice. Uh... Under the Hive of Madness merch 2024, a leather-bound book of grudges that everybody oh can God, write their shit like list in. Punishment, grudges, it has like to be called... You have to call it Marky's Book of Punishment. <laughs> and it's like it's like M upside down A R backwards K. It's a sideways A. <laughs> it glows because the pages are warpstone gilded. It's It's nice. I love it. I, have I, wa- I want this book. Pouch. I want this book now. <laughs> yes. Oh my god. 
You guys ready? Yeah, I think we're good. <laughs> okay. In his stalwart attempt to avoid war, High King Gotrick Starbreaker sent messages to the elves demanding to know the reasons behind these attacks, and more importantly, why Phoenix King Kaldor II wasn't taking action to stop them. In response to the Sundering, the High Elves, for the most part, had become isolationists. Colonies and populations still lived in the Old World, but not in the numbers seen before, and news was slow to travel if it ever did arrive. They had mostly been unaware of the Druki's actions and the problems they were causing. This mixed with their reluctance to even talk about Malekith's rebellion and the truth behind the Elven Civil War was an extremely well-kept secret. The elves refused to talk about it, so any outside observer, the existence of another faction, the Dark Elves, was completely unknown. Dwarves were also a very unified people, and the idea of a civil war within their own ranks was almost unthinkable. Factors that led to miscommunications and misunderstandings at the least. Plus, Kalidor II wasn't exactly well known for his deft tactfulness in negotiation and diplomacy. So the message in response to the Gotrek Starbreaker was uncompromising and extremely direct. If Gotrek wanted any kind of recompense, he should come to the High Elf capital of Lothurn, get on his knees, and beg for it. This outraged the Dowie, the Dwarven kings calling for war in response to the insult. But once again, in a show of extreme patience and diplomacy, High King Starbreaker attempted to cool their Templars the word is tempers. Tempers, and in 1997 before IC, sent his best ambassadors and reckoners to Ulthwin. This delegation was led by Forret Grimbach, and when it arrived in Lothurn, many of the elves realized how serious the issue had become, among them the Phoenix King's own chief advisors. I was like, um, if he was trying to cool their Templars, things had gone really bad. <laughs> See, things in, happened in the warp, you know. And <laughs> in, 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 in my thing is too, like how, how you not telling the difference between you know, like we we're talking about what 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 was the other movie, Mean, mean Girls? Yeah. How are the dwarves not telling the difference between the stereotype cheerleaders and the goth girls running around? Exactly. Because because to dwarves, everything that's not a dwarf <laughs> looks. Hey, wait a minute. They don't have blonde hair anymore, and they all got mascara. What the hell's going on? Exactly. Well, to a dwarf, everything that isn't a dwarf is ugly and doesn't look right. And mm -hmm. like, like that's the mentality. The mentality yeah, I, of dwarves is that it just, it just tells you how much better of a king Melkaith is because he would have done negotiations and found out what was so going on. What you're telling me are the dwarves are a bunch of teenage girls. Yes. <laughs> the dwarves are very insular people. They're not an isolated people. They're very insular. They're very dwarves are the best. Dwarves are the only, you know, they're, they're just, that's just the way they are. In, in this old world, they are the stereotype dwarves and fantasy stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah hey, I'm short, but I'm going to kick your ass and out drink you. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was it in uh, The Witcher? They have the those dwarves. Oh, I fucking love those. They guys. are fucking hilarious. I'm assuming it's very similar to that. <laughs> if the way they talk, yeah, but yeah, yeah. The way they talk, he's really friendly because he likes Garrot. But yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 The dwarves yeah, are just to a dwarf. I'm 
it, it's kind of hard to, I mean, maybe I am describing it well, but like to a dwarf, dwarf technology is the best, dwarf architecture is the best, dwarf engineering is the best. And to a, a fair point, they're right. Their stuff is just better than the younger races and even the elves because they build better, but they're not, you know, they, they don't have a lot of nuance. They're not a people known for their gooder words. <laughs> they're not eloquent. They're very direct. They're very stoic. They're very set in their ways um, down to the fact that like the whole idea that, the elves could have split into two warring factions that don't like each other is anathema to a dwarf, which mm-hmm. doesn't necessarily make a heck of a lot of sense because we know that chaos dwarves at this point have already kind of started to exist. But but that when, wasn't because of infighting. That was because they were abandoned in the mountains or whatever it was, right? It was because they were twisted by Hashut. And even at the time when they did eventually meet with the chaos dwarves again, they didn't they, it, it horrified them. They didn't react as if they were a force to be fought. They welcomed them as brothers and got fucked because they're, they're mm-hmm. just, their they're mentality is inter- Yeah, exactly. Their mentality doesn't accept that this can happen. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of which my new I Warhammer 40 K conspiracy theory. Sorry, Chuck oh. tinfoil hats on for Warhammer 40 K conspiracy theory. So in the old world of Warhammer, there are technically five chaos gods because Hashut is the chaos god of greed and like like selfishness, greed, avarice, that sort of stuff. The Warhammer 40k doesn't have Hashut because in Warhammer 40k, we have the emperor of mankind who is the god of greed and avarice and being full of mm. fucking self. Anyway, sorry. Continue. Mm. Wow. <laughs> that sounds about right. I mean, you mean the god of humanity is the greatest? <laughs> Oddly enough, the chaos dwarves kind of think that their god is the god of chaos dwarves are the greatest. Mm-hmm. <laughs> their empire is not as uh, vast and great. Just saying. Or is it? Maybe it is. They never kept exploring. It's like, this is where they're at. <laughs> right. That's it. All right, I'm sorry. I, I, I derailed this. You had you had some comments about the old world, Chuck. Sorry. Oh, no, I was going to like tell Marky. It's like, hey, we're dwarves. You wear hats because it's cold. Let's drink together. Like, that's basically how they were. And the mm-hmm. the chaos dwarves essentially stabbed him in the back. I don't. Did we get to that? I don't think we did, right? We haven't gotten to that part of yeah. history yet, but essentially the, to foreshadow what's going to ha- what happens between that. That's essentially what happens. That's mm-hmm. not great. The the dwarves essentially like as 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 the realms keep going on, you're gonna learn like the dwarves get screwed over a lot because they actually are kind of like the nice guys, like oh you're humans and you're barely doing stuff. Hey, yeah. this is a tool. This is how you make armor. Now the chaos mm-hmm. dwarves were they fighting or betraying or whatever they did to or yeah to the dwarves because of they were resentful towards them or just because they're bad. They pretty much they pretty much just get into a place where they they absolutely hate Don't give everybody a shit about anybody. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. gotcha. And their mm-hmm. and their god is essentially Hashut is essentially like the the incarnation again, greed, avarice, and mm-hmm. like self self centered. Like that's you know like if Slanish is the god of excess, excess and sex yeah. and all of that, so Hashut is the the god of like 
I am the best. Like we're the only one. Like the god of xenophobia, mm-hmm. I guess, if you want to look at it in a certain Gosh. way. Okay, yeah, you're right. Hundred percent. Hashut is not a good dude. No. <laughs> Once again, in an example of his political acumen and refined tact, however, Kaldor II recklessly <laughs> denied the charges laid against him and the Azur. Sure, he was technically right, but there was a right and a wrong way to go about defending Azurian honor. Against his advisors, Kalandor even refused to investigate the origins of the attacks, further pushing on the wedge that Malekith had expertly planted. Grimbach, determined and probably a bit self-righteous himself, once again demanded that the elven court investigate who of their people was responsible, or the dwarves would consider the court itself to be responsible. This enraged Kaldor II, and fearing for his reputation, the Phoenix King took an action which was quite possibly the last spark needed to kickstart the whole thing. Directing his rage at Grimbach, Kalandor ordered that the dwarf be shaved, both of his hair and beard, before the emissary and his delegation were expelled from Ulthwin. Kalandor knew that this was a grave insult to both Grimbach and the High King and the Dawi people by extension, and it would perfectly impart the message of his anger back to Karak and Kor. The High King Starbreaker got the message loud and clear, and immediately ordered the forges and armories to prepare for war. A path to a peaceful resolution was no longer on the table. Grimbach would take the oath of the Slayer, due to the shame put onto him by this incident. To become a Slayer is to become an engine of mass destruction, as these warriors seek nothing more in life than the honorable and glorious death in battle against any of their foes. Only death met in this way can ever expunge their shame. Dang, that's some, like, sisters of battle kind of rhetoric there. Oh yeah, the Slayers are crazy. This reminds me a lot of the sisters. The the Slayer cults are pretty cool. Slayer cults are probably one of my favorite little tidbits of the old world. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I have a huge soft spot for a lot of the like human cities too. Like mm-hmm. there's, there's just a lot of like really cool eccentricities and like specific mixing of old cultures in the empire, which I find super mm-hmm. neat, but the slayers are definitely interesting. Slayers are yeah. cool. Taller the Mohawk, the bigger the prey. Yeah. The more That's things right. they've killed. Yeah. And, and in the tabletop part of it, playing them is the most ridiculous. Ridiculous thing ever. And a lot of them are not pretty. <laughs> like yeah. they have ripped off ears. They've got like gouged out eye. Cause they, I mean, they're essentially on a path to die in battle mm-hmm. um, and they will throw themselves into the worst of the fighting in order to die. Like, mm-hmm. like it's that kind of, it's part of that idea of like, I can't remember who talked about this, but at one point I had heard, uh, a a talk given by one of the Blue Angel pilots, mm-hmm. um, and it was it, it's something that at the time was kind of like a talk that he had just, like I got access to because I'm the kid of a Navy officer. But it's something that he went on to talk about in a wider forum at some point later. But basically, the idea is a lot of the good fighter pilots, a lot of the guys who have ace status, they mm-hmm. go into combat knowing they're going to die. And because they've accepted that they are going to die, they fight better and harder. Like it's a psychological thing that our brains do. No. And like, that's kind of what the entire Slayer mentality is built on. I'm going to die in this battle. Oh shit. I just killed 
a troll and two ogres. Well, I guess I'm going to die in the next one. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then they just kind of they, they either keep surviving or they do they they eventually most of them eventually meet bitter ends and we'll we'll definitely devote an episode to the slayer cult because i love the slayer cult so many have been our brave and honorable warriors who have laid their lives upon the altar of battle and joined our ancestors in their hollowed halls may their flagstones never weather Each will be remembered for their valor and steadfastness. Each shall be avenged upon the elves, yet none is such a loss as that of our own blood, our son and heir, Snorri Halfhand, the fallen prince, Karaza Karak. The War of Vengeance The Dowie kings muster their forces from across the far-flung boundaries of the dwarven realms. Ironbreakers of Karaza Karak would march alongside Longbeards from Karak Azgak, Slayers from Karak Kadrun, and Hammerers from Ekrund. It took close to a year before the dwarves were ready to march to the war against the elves, and in this time Kalidor II and the High Elves didn't react to the growing threat, the Phoenix King arrogant in his superiority. Now that the elves didn't have reason to think an attack would come, for as long as High King Gotrick Starbreaker sought to rule in peace for as long as possible, his son Snorri Halfhand had already moved against them, his actions in part adding to Kalidor's enraged response to Grimbach's delegation. Snorri was a proud, stubborn, and xenophobic dwarf, ever seeking to gain a name for himself to impress his father and he had led many expeditions into the untamed wild tunnels of the Dwarven Empire. Along with his cousin Morgrim, they quested to rid these deep places of monsters and other threats. It was in one such expedition to the abandoned dwarf hold of Karak Krum that his hand was mangled by giant rats, leading to his name. Such a wound was seen as ignoble, and this drove Snorri to ever greater feats in order to prove himself. In one such quest, he came across the rune lord Ranald Silverthumb of Karazakarak, who had been thought lost in the search of ancient magics. Silverthumb prophesied that one of their party was destined to defeat Dragon and become king, and Snorri decided this must surely mean him. What does the model look like? Is there a model for Snorri? Or is uh, this like an old, old... No, Snorri, Snorri Halfhand, I think, did have a model at one point. Um, I was trying to find it earlier, but yeah, Snorri does not. Snorri is, is like a is, a is a tragic figure in this particular war. Okay, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. I was going to say, does Hand look like, uh, what's his name, his face? That one guy from uh, the, the uh, uh, what is it, Word Bears? No. Oh, from Emperor's Children. Emperor's Children, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the oh, sword oh. master guy. <laughs> Lucius? No. Lucius, yeah. Did, did Snorri's hand look like Lucius's face? So Snorri's hand, uh, you can kind of see it in, in this piece of artwork. If you join us for 3 6 or $9, you can see a video with our Patreon content. But see how one of, his, one of his hands is a hand and his other hand is like permanently inside of a gauntlet? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Ba- so that's kind of how... Yeah, basically his hand was so fucked up that it had to basically be encased in armor. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. So he's like, uh, uh, you ever read uh, the comics of Age of Apocalypse? 
Wolverine has one hand of his hands blasted off, and he had just an adamantium club. <laughs> I did not <laughs> see that. No, that's him right there. Holy <laughs> shit! He's got big old clubs swinging it around. Slot your axe handle into one one half of it to hold it, and then your yep. other hand controls it. And it's not really clear as to whether or not that was what was going on, or if Snorri could still at least open and close his hand, but he didn't really have like fine dexterous manipulation he wouldn't he wouldn't be able to paint his own mini with that hand yeah basically Uh all all of the fine skill was gone which for a dwarf who's supposed to be able to do relatively large feats of like craft fine detail crafting and smithing is is seen as kind of like a mark against them interesting maybe the giant rat touch him yeah he chomp on his fingers uh, forearmed emperor is no joke. Mm-hmm. Upon their return after his wounding, they came across the elven dragon prince Im- Imladric. Imlamdric, thank you, who offered to fly them back to Karaz a Karak. While Morgrim found this to be the smartest option, it was taken as an insult by Snorri, who began to antagonize the Azure prince. Stubborn to a fault, he insisted that they walk, whereupon arriving home and having his wounded hand treated, the High King assigned Snorri to the place of Skarinwi. This title basically means hill dwarves and is assigned to dwarves who act as emissaries to elves and other surface-dwelling races. Even though this essentially made Snorri a king, it took him from being a prince to being a king, who would only answer to his father, the High King, he still took this as a great insult and rejected the title. Gotrick Starbreaker scalded his son for his foolishness and brash nature, imparting the wisdom that being a king wasn't about war and killing, but about cultivating peace across the realm for as many and for as long as possible. Snorri, however, only saw conquest as the answer and now set his eyes upon the High Elves, who it seemed were attacking Dawi caravans. And after Runelord Agrun Fireheart of the Barak Var was slain by the Druchi raid en route to Karaza Karak, Snorri decided enough was enough. Along with the aid of the kings of Zunbar, Zufbar, thank you, Karakadrak, and Barak Var, Snorri mustered a force at Blackfire Pass, eventually marching on Kar Vaneth. Nineteen ninety seven before I see. So this is right about the time that Grimbach and his delegation are arriving at Ulthwin. This is all kind of happening right at the same time. And against his cousin Morgrim's advice, he raised the city to the ground. News of this attack actually reached Kalandor the second the same morning that Grimbach's delegation was speaking to him. So is this kind of like a you're granted the title of Jedi, but not the rank situation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a kind of. It basically, yeah. Got- Gotrek was like, look, you really need to learn. You need to learn the lesson that peace is the answer. And because uh-huh. of that, I'm going to make you the king who's the emissary to the elven colonies. So he but gave uh, him, he gave him the real. Yeah, he gave him the real title. But Snorri wanted to be a warlord. Snorri didn't want it. And that's the thing. Snorri, at this point in his life, has no desire to be a king. He just mm-hmm. wants to be a warlord. Mm-hmm. I don't blame him. You know, a little yeah. bit of a badass. 
He is Definitely. kind of a little bit of a badass for a chunk yeah. of his life. A little badass. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a very short badass. <laughs> Who's that Aww. guy fighting on his knees over there? Oh, it's a dwarf. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he's standing up. <laughs> and Marky now goes in the book of grudges. <laughs> <laughs> like he wasn't there already. <laughs> Snorri Halfhand would lead his dwarven warhost to Elven Fortress City of Tor Alessi, and although the first days of the assault would go to dwarves, the inner city would hold and a siege would settle in. This was the target that the High King's own warhost marched towards some eight months later. Upon arriving and meeting with his son's forces, the High King swore an oath that he would extract recompense either in blood or elven gold, or he would shave his beard. The dwarves weren't about to let their king break his promise, and the siege and assault renewed with vigor. The outer. Sorry district- to interrupt you, but Marky or um, Chuck, I think you're the one who asked the question. That is the example of a gr- of the writing in the Book of Grudges. Yeah, yeah, gotcha. Uh huh. The outer districts fell, and the Asur were pushed back. Their heels dug in at the edge of the sea. When word reached Kalidor II, his rage was once again provoked, and the Phoenix King ordered his generals to assemble the largest fleet ever seen to relieve the city. This force was naval force, was truly massive, dwarfing, get it, dwarf puns, (laughs) any seen before or since. The Council of Elven Princes worried that this move would leave Ulthwin vulnerable and exposed and their lands undefended. But Kalidor wouldn't be denied. Upon their arrival, the siege was ended and the dwarves were punished back out of their city under the sheer overwhelming numbers of the elves. So began a back-and-forth conflict which raged across the territory of the Old World. For their part, the elves proved to be an incredibly disciplined and well-drilled professional military, while the dwarves proved to be stubborn and relentlessly often defending their fortresses long after any other foe would have been broken, at times even defending them to the point where the elves, who seemed to be the clear victors, were the ones to retreat. And this kind of goes back to a point that Chuck has made a bunch. Malekith was a disastrously good general. He was Mm -hmm. the pinnacle of elven generals. And this is the generation still of elves that drilled under Malekith. Under him, yeah. Mm-hmm. And not, yeah, a lot of them yeah. do do leave with him, but yeah. But now you've got, you know, poets leading the way as well. And yeah, it, it it's crazy to hear that, like, or it's crazy to read some of the, like, micro accounts. And, and a lot of this stuff from this time period in history, there's a couple of books about the War of the Beard. Or there's, there's, there's a book about the War of Vengeance and there's a book about the War of the Beard. And I think one of them is a short story, but don't quote me because I can't 100% remember. But this is definitely that like collection of allegorical stories. There's not a lot of, you know, they, they follow around specific characters. They don't follow like all of the battles that are happening. It's not like a complete history of World War II is, is kind of what I'm driving at. But mm-hmm. like the elves would essentially talk about how they had laid siege to the city for 16 months and the dwarves are starving and the dwarves are not winning and most of them are half dead or dead. There's only like 15 dwarves left defending it. And eventually the elves are just like, 
this is such a colossal waste of time we give up and they would leave though the dwarves would win out of sheer sheer spite <laughs> sheer stubbornness <laughs> just fuck you or not leaving <laughs> As the years dragged on and the conflict became a slog of 20 years of attrition to both sides, Snorri had begun to understand his father's lessons. The dwarven prince saw the darkness which had descended on the Azur and the Dawi people and sought a way to break it. For his part, Kalidor II, known as Kalidor the Warrior, also sought an end to the conflict. However, he had much more bloody means in mind. So it was that in 1974, before I see, the Phoenix King decided to take to the battlefields of the Old World in person for the first time at Angaz Bargadum. This old abandoned iron mine was just south of Blackfire Pass, where Snorri's army was based. This was to be the first time that the Azur would go on the offensive and directly attack the Karaz Ankor, rather than just respond to or defend their territory. In response, Snorri Halfhand led his forces to face the Phoenix Kings. In a display of integrity, bravery, and possibly a dash of battle-won wariness and wisdom, Snorri called a parley and offered a solution to Kaldor II. In an effort to end the bloodshed and bring a conclusion to the war, Snorri would face Kaldor in single combat. The victor would determine which force won the war. Others claim that while this might have been Snorri's more noble intention, upon meeting with Kalendor, the Dawi prince saw the High Elves' dragon armor and took this as a sign of the dragon he was destined to slay and decided to goad the Phoenix King into a duel. Whatever the case, it was agreed upon and single combat would be used to determine the fate of the Old World. However, as Snorri observed the proper preparations and rituals needed for single combat, Kaldor struck out at him, the elves' spear breaking Snorri's helm and casting him to the ground. For all of his arrogance and bravado, Kaldor II was an extremely skilled warrior, and he rained deadly blows down upon the recovering dwarf with power and speed. Snorri was able to get his shield up and fend off the spear blows in order to recover his feet and trade true blows with his opponent. But, Kaldor was able to bait Snorri into a reckless and foolhardy attack, and the Phoenix King's spear struck true once again, pinning the Dowie prince to the bloody ground through his thigh. Kaldor then drew his sword and sundered open the Gormril breastplate and the prince, and the prince's own chest cleaving into his bone, bringing an end to the duel. Although victory was clearly his, Kaldor wasn't done, and he chopped his sword down again against the downed prince, removing his arm. He raised the severed arm above his head like a trophy and strode before his own gathered war host. It was then that Snorri's bodyguard moved to intervene, the rules of single combat having been violated too many times, and they wished not to see the body of their fallen prince mutilated even more. It's also kind of implied that Snorri was defeated but not killed, and then oh. Kaldor cut off his arm, and that was enough of an extra wound to basically ensure that Snorri was going to bleed to death. Mm -hmm. Like it, it was kind of one of those like gentlemen's agreements: first blood from the upper torso, and then Kaldor gets full blood from the upper torso. First blood from the upper torso, and then Kaldor goes, "Fuck the rules! I'm going to murder you." And mm -hmm. and essentially at that point, the dwarves were like what the fuck? This is not the agreement. Like mm -hmm. the, the dwarves 
upon seeing Snorri defeated, we're like, okay, we're going to give up. Mm-hmm. But immediately after that, Kaldor strikes again, and they're like, oh, fuck no. And it all turns bad real fast. Just didn't even so say no. I'm assuming. <laughs> I'm assuming the dwarves took exception to that and didn't uh, honor the single combat. No. <laughs> Absolutely not. So the high elves, Kalendor broke the rules of single combat. So the dwarves mm-hmm. are technically justified. Yes. Which is very big to the dwarves. If they can technically justify it, <laughs> it's all good. They're, they're, they're going all the way with it. <laughs> War's back on, boys. <laughs> There's a loophole. <laughs> I didn't hear no bell. <laughs> yep. But they also lost Snorri. Yes. Yeah. And it and it again it's sort of heavily implied that Snorri could have survived the the blow that ended the duel, but he could but not survive having out. his arm chopped off. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Spear through the thigh, breastplate broken. You can you can make it through that if you're torn your arm. Totally. Your arm. My arm's off. I mean, was it was it his mangled arm or was it just his mangled hand arm? I'm assuming it was his mangled arm because that that hand the half hand would be the thing that gave Snorri like his name and his prestige. Uh, yeah. mm-hmm. Even even though it was kind of like an ignoble and or an infamous prestige, it was still the thing that gave him a prestige. So that was the trophy that Kalantor would have wanted. Um, and I also would have guessed that, like, I mean, the way that they, the way that dwarf musculature is described, dwarves are just incredibly broad and like well muscled. So mm-hmm. hacking through its through a dwarf's arm is probably caving in a good chunk of their chest. You know, mm-hmm. he didn't cut off like, you know, his forearm. He cut off his arm. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. And one of yeah, the, one of the other up things. On the arm that you go, the more dangerous it is. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the other things is the more you mutilate in dwarf and culture, the more you mutilate a dwarf's dead or dying body. That that's carried into the afterlife, and because mm. that's carried into the afterlife, the loss of an arm is seen is again a black stain on your honor. Even in death, mm. it's a black stain on your honor. Mm. That makes sense. And Kaldor knew all of this. <laughs> like, that's why Kaldor is not an innocent boy. <laughs> no, he's he's a mean girl. He's an asshole. <laughs> yeah, he's a mean girl. Yeah, yeah. Or if it had been Melkaith, like the peace would have been handled. He would have looked into it. He would have dealt with those treacherous elves. Like it would have been a whole other story. <laughs> if it had been Melkith, he would have been like, he would have been that Captain Kirk meme where he's like covering his face and going, oh mm-hmm. no, because Melkith was orchestrating the whole thing. <laughs> no, I'm saying if Melkith was the Phoenix King. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, he would have been like, you know what? I'm looking into this because they should be punished because I like dwarves. We fight good together. Mm-hmm. Something like that. <laughs> As we mentioned in episode two, it was then that Kalidor cast the severed limb into a pool of water and retreated, the enraged dwarven warhouse chasing the elves back to their ships. News of his son's death and this dishonor shown not only throughout the single combat but to his son's body enraged the High King, and he pledged great wealth to the dwarf who slew Kalidor II. Grudges that would be settled later in the war when Morgrim Elfdoom slew Kalidor's own brother Imladric, then in the final siege of Torlesi. 
For the next six years, the High Elves fought a retreating battle before, in 1968 before IC, they took a stance at Oregor, where the battle lines of Dowie and Asur met rivers of blood flowed as hundreds lost their lives on each side. The bloodshed only stopped when Dragon Prince Imladric, the leader of the elven forces at Oregor, met again in single combat and was slain by Morgrim Elfdoom. Once again, and this time, the leaderless elves retreated. Morgrim was crowned a hero and continued to push into elven territory, capturing towns and cities in the Old World. To give context to where these events fall in relation to our last episode on Nagash, it was in 1968 before IC when a group of dark elf sorcerers were blown off course and had to dock in Kemri where they were treated to Nagash's special version of hospitality in the Great Pyramid. Then, in 1959 before IC, Nagash moved to entomb his brother Dutep, uh, seizing the throne and becoming the priest-king of Khemri himself. Dude, I gotta say, the name Morgrim Elfdoom is so badass. Yeah, I love that. More that yeah. That is such a badass name. I'm not gonna lie. I love how I love how a lot of times the dwarves so dwarves are given a name and then they get another name, like their surname when they do something. Right, right. You're so like that. Star yeah. Starbreaker. What did he do? <laughs> oh yeah. Because <laughs> you know that Elf Doom murdered an elf. <laughs> well, Does this probably... have something to do with the twin tail comet? I I think. Um, I we we would have to do an episode focusing on Gotrick Star Starbreaker, but I'm pretty sure he got the name Starbreaker because he forged his hammer from shards of a star. I was just about oh, to say dope. that he might have forged like some kind of meteor or something, mm, like an yeah. unbreakable metal that he was able to forge where others mm. couldn't, kind of thing. That that's the what comes to mind at least. I'm pretty sure that's what happened, but I'm Elf. not. Yeah, <laughs> Morgrim is already a badass name. Elf Doom so, on the end of that is so. How many? Sick. How many Elven leaders did he kill in hand-to-hand combat by himself? Like, mm-hmm. d- just picture yes. that dude, <laughs> right? That, that that dude's leading like his his company and his group, and he's constantly with an axe. There's the leader. Chasing like, after the leader and killing the leaders. Like, what was that one sword in uh, The Hobbit? I think it was, like, the Goblin Cleaver or something oh, like yeah. that. Yeah, there's uh, Goblin Cleaver and, f- and f- Foe Hammer. Yeah, and Foe Hammer. Like, the, oh, my God, that's such badass names. They're like, oh, he's got the Goblin Cleaver. I was like, oh. And they glow that, blue. That's a badass sword. That's always one of the cooler things about fantasy, like, weapons and fantasy names, is you can you can play a lot with them. Mm-hmm a lot of legendary weapons just just picture it the dude just waiting through all the time picture marky you're an elf like warlord right and you're constantly like winning battles pushing pushing back and you constantly see there's a dwarf with his axe like pointing at like your your officers he's just tearing them down one at a time it's (laughs) elf oh man love it back to the events of the war of the beard Morgrim raised the city of Athe Mariah in 1948 before IC. In the preceding battle for the city, both the Azur hero Lord Salandor of Tor Arkare and the Dowie hero Brock Stonefist of Karak Azul 
veterans of the long years of conflict lost their lives. It was from here on that war groaned into a bitter stalemate of attrition, which slowly eroded the strength of both races for the next 400 years. While much of Athel Lauren was destroyed as it simply laid in the war's unrelenting path. So Athel Lauren, if you picture in your mind a map, and for those of you who have joined us on Patreon, I have brought a map up. Athel Lauren, the, the, if you picture Europe, kind of, without Great Britain, you've got Spain and then you've got Western Europe and you've got kind of a, a little bit of Italy and all of that. And then right at about where Russia would start, where, where, where the old Iron Curtain would have been in the mm -hmm. Cold War era, that's where the World Edge Mountains come down. And they separate essentially what would be the mid e the the yeah the Eurasian continent the Eurasian mm -hmm. side of the continent from the Western European side of the continent basically if you then look at like where Germany and a lot of those places are as being one as being the core of the empire and then you have another like little splinter mountain range. And then on the other side of that, that's Athel Loren. It's a large forest. And there's two big forests. There's the Great Forest in the Empire, which is essentially the Black Forest in Germany, but back in the day. And then there's Athel Loren, which is like beyond, like, for lack of a better word, if you're just trying to picture stuff quickly, on the other side of the Alps. And mm -hmm. Athel Loren was just caught between the dwarves pushing the elves back to the coast of Estalia and Bretonia. And the, the, so as the door, as the dwarves are pushing the elves back, the area that's being fought in the most is Athel Lauren on each side of that mountain range, basically. Mm -hmm. It just, it just gets ground up. Everything gets ground up. It's just very bad for, for anybody who's not in the war and for people on both sides, it's not good. Of course, during the 400 years of bitter fighting, a lot happens elsewhere, and even in the old world itself. In 1955, before I see, the dwarves first come into contact with the ogres of the world's, in the world's edge mountains, and expeditions are prepared to go into the mountains of Morn. Between 1950 and 1750, before I see, this is the time period that roughly chronicles Nagash's artificially prolonged life up into the construction of the massive Black Pyramid of Nagash. In 1950, before I see, the dwarves and men found the city of Tylos. In 1880, before I see, the men of Tylos begin construction of a great temple. In 1860, before I see, a sunken pyramid rises from beneath the fleet of the, of the seafaring chaos lord Valdison and a great battle occurs between his warriors of chaos and the city's scaly webbed finger denizens. Eventually, Vladinson sorcerers summon a comet that sinks the city once again, and we're going to put a pin in that for now and come back to it. In 1800 before I see, the dragon emperor reunifies Cathay. In 1780 before I see, the temple of Tylos is completed and the city's degradation into Skaven blight begins. Between 1750 and 1650, before I see, the priest kings of Nehekara rise up against Nagash. He is defeated and ends up fleeing north. 
The then priest kings of Lamia steal his books and make themselves into dirty vampires. And that covers most of what we have covered up to this point for old world history. There's some other events that we'll get back to and that take place before the end of the War of the Beard in 1600 before IC. But since we haven't talked about them yet, we didn't necessarily want to drop hints about them. But if you were wondering how to ground the 400 years of just bitter fighting that happens, this is all the stuff happening not in the old world. And the old world is essentially all of Europe is the easiest way to look at it. It is all of Europe. So if you want to picture how big the conflict is in your head. So, so you're saying when they become vampires, these are the ones that become like dirty vampires. Yeah. The, the mutilated <laughs> ugly ones, not the like hot Gothic looking chick ones. No, the, the priest Kings of Lamia become the vampire counts. So the hot <laughs> ones. Yeah, well, the, the yeah. ones that you're okay with getting bit, like, okay. Yeah, not the Nosferatu ones. <laughs> it, oh, no. Not the Nosferatu ones? Okay, those come later. I'm going to go walk, get naked, and walk in the cemetery. <laughs> it spans the entire gambit. There are many different courts. Hey, you can find courts. Ryan. Emmy, Emmy gets what I'm going with. That's all yeah, I care I about. She, she gets it. Just, I do get it. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the, the flesh, the flesh eater courts, the nasty vampires are one court of the the pretty vampires. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, it comes from an old joke, uh, like the old trope of horror movies where he, the guy walks in and he's like, "Billy, Billy, oh, all right, well I'm gonna get naked and take a shower." And, like the killer, <laughs> like is behind the the shower curtain with the knife, kind of thing. Mm. The easiest way to die in a in a film is to be teenagers and have sex before marriage. That's right. That's right. And it be yourself afterwards. Yeah, you get in that sleeping bag, get slammed up against a tree. And you have to do it at a campground. Mm-hmm. While some kid is drowning. <laughs> right, exactly. 100%. Or you, or you just behind, hide behind the wall of chainsaws. It's always safe there. <laughs> That Geico commercial. That is Quick, my guys, favorite. let's hide in this shed, and there's just all the chainsaws. That is my favorite commercial ever, because the stereotype, uh, the, the the blonde is like, why can't we just get in the running car? They're like, what are you, stupid? <laughs> Reminds me of, uh, what's that What's that guy's name, Mayhem? Oh, I love that oh, guy. Yeah, I Mayhem, fucking yeah. love those. That was like the golden oh, yeah. age of those uh insurance commercials there's another good one there's one now that's out where he's like and you're enjoying your camping trip and i'm the bear (laughs) and he like rips the door off the car and like shreds up the it's it's pretty funny um the other thing that that the thing that that commercial that geico commercial that you just brought up always reminds me of chuck is in twister when they're the car's broken down and they're trying to like find a place to hide and they go into Mm -hmm. the barn and there's just all of the like bladed Im- implements hanging from yeah. the ceiling, and yeah. he's like, Perfect. "Who lives here?" <laughs> yeah, I love, I love that commercial, man. Like, I know it's Halloween when I see that commercial. I'm like, and I, lo- I love, I love the 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 chainsaw guy is like standing there, and he's like, "Oh God, they're so." You see it in his face, his own defeat of, "I really have to kill them." Like, they're that stupid. Mm-hmm. He's like. He's like, I don't want to do it, but I, I guess I have to do this. <laughs> I love it. You're making me do this. What was the old uh, 
the old Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie. I know they did a remake, but the, there was another one with, uh, with like Jessica Biel or something, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, I like that one. I enjoyed that. Is one. Is that the prequel one? I don't know if it's a no. I think the newer one's the prequel the, one. Is the it re, the remake of how like how? I think it was a remake. I don't know if it was a prequel, but that one was that one was good. I haven't seen the new one. I. I I saw like a trailer with the new one where he like gets on a school bus or something and like all the kids get on their TikTok and like start recording him. And I was like, I don't know if I can watch this. <laughs> like what's on our TikTok? It was it was that or like YouTube or something, something, something maybe Twitch. I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I was just telling you that that one commercial is great, man. I, it's Halloween every year. Yeah, it's it's hard to be a horror movie in the social media era. For sure. <laughs> what, did Ryan, what did Ryan just make? So you know that you know the meme format of the dudes from Cabin in the Woods. Yeah, where they've got like the big board. So so yep. the top the top says who had Malekith starting a war between the Azura and the Dowie for May. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not on my bingo card. <laughs> it wasn't on my 2023 bingo card. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh. <laughs> okay. In 1560 before I see the fourth and final siege of Tor Alessi, known as the Battle of the Three Towers, began. For over a hundred days, the siege engines of the Dowie attacked the city walls. Unable to breach the walls, the dwarves switched their attention to destroying the city's finely constructed towers, and it was here that they were finally able to gain entrance. Pushing into the middle of the city, the dwarven High King Gotrick Starbreaker finally confronted Kalidor, and the pair met in a duel. Lasting for three days without end, neither stopping or disengaging from the fight at the city's heart, finally Kalidor began to tire and Starbreaker disarmed him before smashing his sword with a rune axe of Grimnir, pushing the Phoenix King to his knees. Kalidor pleaded for his life, swearing he would surrender and sue for peace. But the High King saw through the elves' empty words and promises, knowing he wouldn't honor his word. Nor was mercy the dwarf kings to give, only justice, and he executed Kalidor II on the spot. Then to fill his oath of recompense, he took the phoenix crown from Kalidor's head and declared the war to be over. The remaining Azur forces briefly considered a retaliatory strike to besiege Karazakarak in order to reclaim the crown, but it was at this time the Malekith's full plan came to fruition and the Dark Elves launched a full-scale invasion on Ulthwen his legions of warriors raising the ancient sunken city of Anlex from the depths of the great ocean itself. When this is it pours. Yeah, well, this was Malekith's entire plan. Malekith knew that he could goad Kaldor into stretching himself thin, and that once that had happened, because Kaldor II was essentially kind of a dick. I mean, mm-hmm. really. Oh, He's massive. sort of a huge asshole. <laughs> Um, Mm -hmm. And he was completely obsessed with fighting. Like that was his thing. And Malekith knew that if he could get him, if he could get Kalimdor the second to make a dumb move, he could essentially pave the way to reconquer the elven homeland again. Mm -hmm. Because as much as the dark elves and the Druchi embraced their life in Nagaroth, they didn't want to be there. They wanted to control Ulthwin. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's the homeland. 
Warhammer and Warhammer 40k are full of these really interesting kind of hard to digest at times fights where like mm-hmm. they fought for three days neither mm-hmm. tiring and you're kind of like really did they like that's impressive and all but being somebody who's been in armor and has had like a three minute fight against somebody a 10 minute fight is impressive <laughs> a 10 minute fight is impressive enough <laughs> Well, they're also not humans, you know. They're yeah, like exactly. fantasy elves and dwarves. So. Yeah, it's just that, like, yeah. I can't write. I think it's when uh, Ragnar, Blackmane, and Gazgul Thraka fight. They, they, yeah. they ward for a week. And it's like, did mm-hmm. they, though? <laughs> like, like, sure, I get it. But did they, though? <laughs> there's turning mm-hmm. it to 11, and there's turning it to Warhammer 11. It's, that's all I'm saying. That's true. <laughs> all right. I really should try a Gotrick Gurnison voice at some point. I just, I don't think I've got enough, like, gravelly Scottish in me. I was going to say, we need Kevin for this one. Yeah, the, I, I think I could start off, I could be like, we scourged them from the forests and drove them from the lands, but I have a feeling I'd lose it. Should I try After anyway? Not, who were we to trade with? <laughs> all right, all right, I'll try it, I'll try it. We scourged them from the forests and drove them from the lands. After that, who are we to trade with? Commerce between our races had been the source of much wealth, tainted though it was. Worse, the cost in lives was much worse than the costs of our merchants. The finest warriors of three generations fell in the bitter struggle. While we had warred with our faithless allies, the dark gathered in its strength. We were wary of war when the Black Mountains belched forth their clouds of ash. The sky was overcast and the sun hid its face. Our crops died and our cattle sickened. Our people had returned to the safety of their cities and from the very heart of our realm, from the place we imagined ourselves strongest, our foes burst forth. Gotrick Gurnison. I feel like um, I lost it in the middle and then regained it. <laughs> you got it. You got Good. it back. You got your second wind. Good stuff. The aftermath. After the war against the dwarves and the surprise invasion by the Dark Elves, Ulthwin ordered all of the Azur to retreat from the Old World and defend their homeland. Those who stayed behind in colonies would become the Wood Elves of the Anthel Loren. The dwarves won the war against the Elves, but were left weakened, unable to handle the Greenskin and Skaven attacks that were mounting. This led to a catastrophe known as the Time of Woes in the Mountain Kingdoms. A new phoenix crown was made to replace the original one, which was re- which has remained in Karaz Akarak's treasure hoard. The fortress of Sith Rinnozak oh Nemishur was flooded and dismantled, <laughs> marking the end of the betrayal between the elves and the dwarves. Both sides suffered heavy losses in the war, including cities, fortresses, treasures, and the loss of powerful allies. Neither side reached greatness ever again. I'm actually surprised I left this out, but it's also important to note, this also marked the first time, so the last four Phoenix Kings have been by birthright succession. It was Kalendor II that made the Elven Princes go, no more, we are picking a king. Fuck lines of succession. Mm, I like that. So the new, yeah, the new Azure Phoenix King was not related to the Kalendor. Well, not directly related to the Kalendor bloodline. It wasn't mm-hmm. like Kalendor is the second son, essentially, that took over. 
And with that, we have reached 1600 before the Imperial calendar. The elder races are in decline and the old world of Warhammer is primed for the coming of younger races, such as that of mankind. But along with them would come new dangers. And that's where our story will take us next into the blighted remains of Tylos and the skittering hordes of vermin known as the Skaven. That's going to be fun. That's going to be so good. Little beady little eyes just staring at you. (laughs) And that will wrap it up for episode four of Under the Realms of Madness. We will be back, as we mentioned, talking about the Skaven and their obsession with the moons that are made of cheese. As we continue to strive towards the end times and the coming of the Age of Sigmar. Want to share your short stories, lore, or spooky dookies with us? You can hit us up by email at underthehiveofmadness at gmail.com or jimdarkgaming at gmail.com. Join our community on Discord. Not only can you talk with us about the lore, hobby, and tactics of Warhammer 40k, you can get involved in other topics like Warhammer Age of Sigmar. You can talk to me about Magic the Gathering, role-playing games, video games, and much more. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram. Ryan and myself are on the TikTok. You can find us at underthehiveofmadness.com. Spelling and links will be in the show notes, folks. Help the podcast grow by liking and reviewing us wherever you get your podcast fix. We are on Spotify, Apple, Google, Audible, and many more. And if you would feel so inclined, you can support us on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash under the hive of madness. All Patreon members get access to video podcasts with minimal editing so you can see our beautiful faces and hear all of our amazing blunders. All Patreon levels get access to our quarterly painting contest. Plus, we have perks at higher levels, so go on and check it out. Dispatches from the most assured master of Supreme Command, Thankwill himself. Nothing negative has been fallen, his beneficence in Kislev, and all of his plans to capture that dwarven dirigible are well in hand, as long as that rotten lurk snitch tongue doesn't fail in his duties. The reckless cascade of sound designed to make your dad's blood boil right before we blow out his favorite squeakers. This is 665.66 UHMR Radio Free Skaven Blight. Reminding all of you tunnel rats, city mice, and warp lickers to keep those cathodes dialed in. Right here to the truest of ratty frequencies. And always trust that old Skaven saying, trust no one. Not even yourself. But didn't you just say to always trust? <laughs>